Hello, welcome back to the Court Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McInnes, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Brock Steptoe, who has to rank among the basketball players at the University of Hawaii I enjoyed covering most over the last dozen years. Like Jared Dillinger a couple of podcasts ago, Steptoe took the rare path of playing his way up from the scout team to the first team throughout his UH career, and he did it despite standing just 5'9 in sneakers. In 2018 and 19 especially, he had meaningful moments on the Stan Sheriff Center court as late clock Brock, or so Canola he dubbed him, for his clutch performances. But Step, as he's now known, has moved on from the game. He first dabbled in making music during Hawaii's run to the postseason in 2016, taking some encouragement from teammates to record his first tracks in a studio in Kalihi. He's now putting them out instead in New York City, including his most recent EP, Four Seasons. To me, he sounds fantastic, and his wordplay is sublime, but I'd be the first to say, and anyone who knows me can attest, I have a pretty large knowledge gap for music, but thankfully you can listen on to hear a sampling of his work for yourself. A quick word here. In the time since the interview was stepped to last week, we lost some notable greats. College coaching legends Lute Olson and John Thompson, who both did so much for the sport, passed in the last few days. A special word as well for actor Chadwick Boseman. I've become a pretty big fan of Bozeman's work, especially as Black Panther in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and losing him to cancer at just age 43 is so sad. It's a shame we won't all get to see what turn he'd take next. But now, back to a budding artist in his own right in Brock Steptoe. Here we go. Okay, this time on the podcast, I'm being joined by University of Hawaii basketball alumnus Brock Steptoe, a.k.a. Late Clock Brock, making a little time from New York City where he has been pursuing a career in music, which he dabbled in during his time at UH, but now is definitely investing more time in. Brock Steptoe, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's obviously good to be here virtually. Yeah, that's the way to do it these days, right? I mean, six hours apart, eight hours apart. You know, still getting the job done. Yeah, couldn't ask for anything better. When you're trying to reach people from Hawaii, I mean, it's it's kind of been a kind of, you know, inconvenient turn of events for a lot of people in a lot of ways. But in this one instance, reaching people over Zoom that's become mainstream is is worked out just fine for something like this. Exactly, for sure. So, Brock, what what's your day to day right now? I mean, you're you're in New York City, like I said, you're a year plus out from your time playing basketball at the University of Hawaii. What's uh, the le- the city life, the big city, Big Apple? How's that treated you so far? Yeah, so, I mean, I love New York City. I, I feel like I made, you know, a good decision, um, you know, coming out here. So my day-to-day, um, mostly during the week, is, you know, I work a job. Obviously, I do recruitment consulting um, for a life sciences staffing firm. So, um, you know, spend most of my day during the week there. Usually work from about... 8.30 a.m. to about 6 p.m., 6.30, and then, you know, get on the train, come home, um, and then usually spend most of my weekends just obviously with friends working on music, and that's kind of the thing. I mean, obviously, I think, um, you know, music's still the main goal as far as, you know, that being, you know, my source of income and um, hopefully my occupation, but living in New York isn't, it's not, you know, stable enough um, 
to just, you know, be banking on music at the time. So that's, you know, why I still um, working and kind of pursuing, you know, both things at the same time. That said, music was the reason that drew you there, right? And, and Definitely, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, New York, New York and LA are the places to be, you know, when you're pursuing music, just the connections you can make out here and, um, you know, the people you can meet and the scene you want to be in. So um, that was kind of the reason I decided to come out here on top of my cousin also moving out here on the same time. So worked out well um, in that regard. And it's really just kind of a, a slow process of just, you know, meeting the right people and putting in the work, work and, um, you know, seeing things pay off slowly but surely. So that's kind of what it's been this past year. Obviously, coronavirus has put a kind of halt on a lot of the music stuff and that the progression I was getting there. But um, hopefully soon I can kind of get back to um, a consistent flow. Right. Is it pretty competitive? I mean, to there's there's things like getting into the studio, getting studio time. And that's something I know you you dabbled in out here. I think there was a studio in Kalihi that you recorded some of your early tracks in. Right. Yeah. Um, how How have you kind of extrapolated that? And like to a, you know, a place the size of, of where you're at now? Yeah, I mean, it's just like kind of being, well, at least when I first got it, it was just being a, a small fish in a big pond. Like obviously in Hawaii, I don't think there's that many like professional studios to begin with. So like you said, I started off in, um, you know, studio in Kalihi and can pretty much go in there and record whenever I wanted to. And here it's not really the case. You know, if you want to get to like some of the better studios where the, the big engineers are, the um, the people you want to meet are, you know, you have to kind of um, obviously show what you're capable of doing, but also, um, you know, it's just not that easy to get in all the time. So, um, you know, it's been a different experience, but um, I just feel like, you know, from a sound quality standpoint and just like people, um, you know, helping me get better as far as music goes and also like pushing the music, you know, distribution wise, um, you know, it's like night and day compared to what I was doing in Hawaii. So I'm excited for like where I think it's going to be heading and, um, yeah, just excited for the whole process, really. Well, you go by Step now is is your is your brand is your name, and yeah. uh, your most recent production was called Four Seasons with a with a Z on the end, right? Yeah, correct. Four Seasons with a Z. Uh, released that in want to say April. Um, I think sometime in April. Um, recorded all four of those songs right before while while I was in New York, right before I went back um to Texas for you know during the pandemic when it first broke out, and then um. Yeah, I haven't really released any music since then. Haven't really worked on that much. Just, um, but yeah, that was my last body of work, and hopefully, ready to get another one out pretty soon. Okay, well, Brock, we're gonna circle back to your music because I know that's a big identity of what what's been your life, you know, during and after your time at the University of Hawaii. But in the immediate sense, and and what's going on right now, man? I mean, this week we just saw like some more upheaval with you know, Black Lives Matter have been at the forefront of a lot of the, the social justice, social unrest conversation in our country right now. And that was before what happened this week with uh, the, the shooting of a man named Jacob Blake, a black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, by a white police officer. Uh, for those who have not somehow still heard, uh, he was shot in the back seven times as he was trying to get into his car. And that caused another, you know, just upheaval in, in that conversation and the dialogue and protests in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. A couple people have since died. So how did you personally take that, that Brock, when, when you heard what had happened, what transpired? Yeah. I mean, what I, when, when I first found out what happened, you know, took place this week, it's obviously, you know, the same emotions as a lot of the other 
events that are similar. It starts off, you know, just being real frustrated and trying to learn as many details about the situation. But I mean, at the end of the day, like just surface level of what happened, it's just it's tough to see and it's tough to like believe that still goes on, um, you know, in the country we live in. Um, and, you know, I felt like um, I thought, you know, the movement as far as, you know, people standing behind, um, you know, taking a stand against what was going on, you know, with um, George Floyd in that situation and the transpiring situations, I thought it was making some good progress and getting some traction. And then, you know, something like that just shows you what happened this week is just still just so long. Uh, we have to go before um, I think, you know, we're at a place where hopefully a lot of people would like us to be. Now, after the George Floyd incident took place and all that outrage, the NBA came back to the bubble with with the okay to, you know, make make statements as far as their their beliefs, their the cause, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. It, it's written there in no uncertain terms on the courts that the NBA players have been playing on in the bubble in Orlando. All the players are taking a knee before the anthems. Well, when this happened, they all stopped. Everything paused. The players, starting with the Milwaukee Bucks, decide to boycott their game uh, Wednesday. We're recording this on Thursday. And also no games today. We've seen some MLB teams, you know, back away from their games, uh, WNBA. So what what did you think about that kind of progression of protest that, that took place? I mean, I, I love to see it personally. I mean, I think being professional athletes, I think using your platform to to take stands on things like that are, are important, especially in these times. Um, when I think even more so people are aware of that because of the pandemic, like you have no choice but to take notice of, you know, those types of stands that the athletes are taking. So, um, you know, I appreciate what they're doing using their platforms and um, hopefully at the very least it can help bring awareness and trying to get justice for those situations. Um, Obviously, we see like Breonna Taylor, like there still hasn't been justice served with that um, and don't know if, you know, justice will be served, you know, with the Jacob Blake situation as well. Um, but I think just bringing that awareness is obviously ideal. And, um, you know, that's, I guess, the first step, um, you know, when people are in a position to kind of bring awareness to situations, those people stepping up is the first you know, thing that needs to take place. So it's good to see. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, you're a guy who grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, through high school before you, you came out to the islands for your, your college career. I'm curious what your personal experience was with, with anything like that. I mean, did you ever have to be concerned about the, the neighborhood that you lived in or the, you know, the, the people that you were spending time with? Was, was there any thought that you had to be careful around police officers or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, when I got to a certain age, you know, my parents sat me down and just let me know kind of like, that, you know, when I'm around police officers and things like that, there's a certain, um, you know, just to comply and just try not to essentially just don't do anything that can draw too much attention to yourself. And, um, you know, at first it wasn't making sense, like why I have to, um, you know, do certain things differently, um, you know, in those types of settings. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's just kind of the reality we live in. Um, but as far as like experiences, I, I'm very fortunate to say I haven't had too many um, experiences where, um, you know, I was racially profiled, even experienced racism. Um, you know, I grew up around people of all colors, um, you know, through basketball and through school. And, um, you know, most people I'm pretty easy to get along with. And, you know, I don't really have problems with anybody. And I don't think anybody really had too many problems with me. And if it ever was the case, um, just kind of just trying to stay away from those types of people is what I did. So I think I was lucky in that regard. Um, but definitely, 
got the lesson early that, you know, around police officers and law enforcement to just, um, you know, try not to do too much and steer clear of trouble. Well, I'm glad to hear that, man. I mean, that's, you know, there's, there's been a lot of tragedy in the news right now. So, you know, I mean, as many instances of that as we can get as, you know, at least is somewhat reassuring, but definitely Brock, you know, as we talked about, you spent some time in NYC and the other main storyline dominating the headlines right now is still the COVID epidemic. And you were in a place that was ground zero basically for that once everything really exploded in the United States back in like late February, early March. So you, before you left, before you went home to Dallas to get away from all that, what did you kind of see? What did you witness being there? Right. So yeah, when it first broke out around, I think probably it was late February, early March, um, when it started getting serious. Um, to be honest, I was one of the people who didn't really believe in how serious it was at first. Um, and then once I started seeing the numbers of people that were infected and people dying and it became a real serious issue. Um, and I was seeing that, you know, the, the highest numbers at the time were in the city I was living in, the place where I was commuting via subway and working in an office with hundreds of people and stuff like that. It became even, um, you know, more of a concern for me. Um, so I spent a couple of weeks, I'd say, in New York while I was while it was considered the epicenter and things were bad. Most of the time just stayed, um, you know, in my apartment at the time and was working remotely at the time. And then um, right around the time when I felt like it was a possibility that maybe they might shut down travel. Um, I knew I needed to kind of get out um, before it was too late. And so um, booked a flight back home to Texas, where at the time things were um, a little bit better as far as the numbers. Um, now I think they're a lot worse in Texas than they are here, but at the time they were better. Um, and was there from, I think, middle of March until um, July. So um, luckily got out in time, but it was definitely scary at first when it broke out. And, you know, I was in the place that was probably the worst place to be. Did you know anybody that was that either got COVID or, or was directly affected by? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were a few people in, in the building that that I previously lived in that, um, you know, had COVID. So that was even more of a concern. Uh, our building kind of gave notice and obviously they were cleaning the building and, and things like that. Um, but other than that, I, I don't know too many people in New York or even just in my network of friends around um, you know, the country that have gotten it. Luckily, um, no family members have been affected, but um, it's just such a serious matter. You just got to take the precautions anyway to, um, you know, put yourself in the best position and those around you also. Was it ever a thought, Brock, that you would be, was it a given that you would be going back to NYC once you, once you left? No, it wasn't. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, at the time I was still paying rent, um, you know, in the apartment I lived in and it's like, I don't know if I'm ever going back or, or when I'm going back and, you know, how I get my stuff out and things like that. And um, I was just hoping, you know, I was enjoying my time in New York before. So I was just hoping eventually things would clear up. And at first I, I my plans were, oh, I'll go home to Texas for a month and things will clear up. And then as things kept getting worse, it's like became less and less optimistic. Um, but then right around July, the numbers started going down, um, you know, around here. And um, that's when I decided to come back and um, you know where I work now is opened back up and um, was still a little hesitant at that point. It's like kind of felt like I was taking a risk coming back to the city. You know, am I coming back too soon? Things like that. But um, luckily, everything's been you know safe so far and um, feels good to be back. So, as you said, uh, you got some of your 
most recent music work in you recorded it before you went home to Dallas haven't really it sounds like done much as far as the way of new recordings new tracks since you've been back but where Brock would you say overall your aspirational music career is at this point in time right um I say it's I, I mean obviously I think it's a lot better in a better position than it was in Hawaii um as far as like you know streaming numbers alone um you know I typically have you know when I release music the month I release it I usually have you know at, at least on Spotify where I can see the numbers you know tens of thousands of listeners um listening to my music which is I mean it's a start from where I was when I was putting music on SoundCloud and happy with like 100 or 200 plays at the time so um, I think that's cool. Um, obviously, streaming is a big source of, of revenue and music. So it's good to kind of get, I guess, your feet planted in that regard. But um, in the grand scheme of things, um, I don't think I'm, you know, where I'd like to be, um, you know. So it's still a lot of work to be done um, as far as getting better with music and also just finding ways to promote it and get more people to hear it. So um, that's really the next step. And that's part of why I'm in New York and why I got to New York anyway, because I feel like um, I need to be in this type of environment to to get to get make that next big jump. So, hey man, I remember those SoundCloud days. Yeah, the Halcyon days of SoundCloud collaborating with uh, some of your your UH teammates, guys like Brandon exactly, Thomas yeah. and uh, well, who, that who else came a long way from there um, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, who else? Uh, who else did you your teammates did you uh, lay down at least one track with? Yeah, so the first song, well, one of the first songs that I ever released was with with Mike Thomas, um, mm-hmm. and then it had like Sharif doing like some background like vocals just throughout <laughs> the track, just um, doing some ad libs and stuff. So that was like the first time I got the team incorporated. Um, and then, you know, I think when um, Brandon Thomas, Mike's brother, um, when he came, you know, my junior and senior year, and he was someone who took music is just as seriously as I am and still does to this day. Um, that was someone I collaborated with a lot and, you know, went to the studio and we worked basically together, you know, for like three or four hours um, a day. Um, so it was good to have someone taking it just as serious. And in the last year, obviously my senior year, we dropped um, No Flop and made a music video for that with me, Brandon, Drew and and, and Leland. So um, I th- that was probably the best part. Um, I don't think looking back on it, like the music quality wasn't great. Um, you know, just being in Hawaii and in a studio where I didn't know what I was doing, but, um, just incorporating like the two things I love to do basketball and music, you know, with the people that I was around every day, like that was like the experience that, um, you know, I don't take for granted at all. So Brock, what would you say is, was kind of, I mean, your inspiration to, to get all this started, you know, like when did it occur to you? Like, Hey, I could, I could make music, you know, I could record tracks. Like, right, what, yeah. what was so the... I remember uh, pretty clearly, I was like, it was the year we went to the NCAA tournament. Um, so my redshirt freshman year, and I was in my uh, my dorm room at the time, and Mike was, Mike Thomas was in there too, and he just put on like a YouTube beat, and I, I, I always have loved listening to music, but I never like tried to like rap. I just didn't think like, I thought, you know, some people are rappers and other people just listen to music. I thought that's how it was, and then um, you know, he started freestyling and I started trying it and I was like surprised like how it was kind of turning out like it was pretty good. Like I liked the way I sounded and was putting words together pretty well. So then Mike was like, you should just try to go to the studio and record a song or something. And I was like, I didn't even know like you could just just show up to a studio or and I didn't know how that process works. So um, just kind of did my research, found out there was like a studio in Kalihi that, you know, charged like 40 or $50 an hour. And then 
I went there and recorded one song that I that I wrote on pen and paper, like the old school way. And then um, just put it on SoundCloud. It was I put it on SoundCloud like the week um, that we went on, like the last road trip before the Big West tournament of the year. We went to the tournament. So um, I think we landed in UC Davis in, in Sacramento. Um, I put it in released it on SoundCloud, like right when we went to the airport. Um, and then when I got off the plane, it had like a couple thousand views, like on SoundCloud. And I was like, wow, getting like a lot of texts and stuff. And I just put it up for just for fun. Like I didn't know, you know, how people would take it. And I really didn't care. It was just like for fun at that point. But um, when I started getting people like, you know, telling me like, hey, this is pretty good. Like, you know, you should keep trying to do this. You could you know, you could really do this. And I was like, that's when I started taking it serious. So at that point, um, that was really the first stepping stone. And then from there, it was just like, all right, figuring out how I can get better. And um, just been a slow process. I, I compare like how it's been for me with music to how it was with basketball. Like I started out um, at Hawaii with basketball, like at the bottom of the totem pole and then kind of work my way up just every year. And I, I, I feel like you know, if I am fortunate enough to, um, you know, get to where I want to be with music, I feel like it's going to be that same type of process. Got it. Well, I guess if <laughs> the origins of your music at Hawaii would be equivalent maybe to your red shirt year at the University of Hawaii, and now you're, you're maybe along the lines of uh, at least coming off the bench and maybe yeah, working toward I'd getting Yeah, I'd say I'm at the stage lineup. right now where I think it's the, the year I was playing with Noah Allen where it was like, the first time I actually started playing like in the rotation, I, I'd say that's where I'm at in the music phase. Okay. That's, yeah. that, that's some good perspective right there. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, as far as the, the subject matter, Brock, of like, you know, how you would put your songs together. I mean, were your first songs, you know, drawn from either like being a basketball player, being a college student, being someone far flung from home. And then um, what was that the case then? And, and how is it contrasted to what you're, talking about now yeah I mean I think most of my 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 work in Hawaii was like a lot of basketball references or a lot of college references or um you know being far from home if I wanted to get like more I guess conscious about the content um that was typically my main subject matters and um I think now it's a little bit I'm trying to a lot of music now is more melodic so I'm been like trying to figure out how to um you know incorporate that more singing a little bit more and then also um, just, you know, being, I feel like fully independent um, and just more of a grown man, I'd say now, like, I think my content is a little bit all over the place. Um, and it's been a little tough now um, to even like write anything or think about music just because a lot of, you know, my creative process is like going through real life experiences. And I feel like now, um, you know, with the pandemic, I haven't really had too many real life experiences that I can like draw from and then, you know, go in and create that stuff. So I think some of my best work is like when I go through things either positively or negatively. And I think now just, I'm pretty sure everyone can attest to like, it's pretty much just a consistent kind of just like stuck in, stuck in the mud phase that I think everyone's in right now. So it's been a little bit tougher recently. I see. Well, we'll, we'll pause real quick and play yeah. a clip from one of Brock's most recent tracks right now. I'm trying to have my cake and smell the roses. I kept the recipe. I never sold it. And when that pressure came, I never folded. And when it's summertime, my heart decode is. Out in Hollywood, I got a girl that's like an actress. I just fly it out because I don't rock with LA traffic. Okay, that was a clip of track Hollywood on Brock's Four Seasons EP that he put out 
uh, did you say in April, Brock? April, yeah, middle of April. So, yeah, for for reference, how many how many listens do you have on that right now compared to say when you first started? So that one has fourteen thousand something streams on Spotify, and then I think about sixteen or seventeen thousand on Apple Music. So um, that's my most streamed song ever, which is obviously you know why um, that's the one that seems to get the most traction. So. Um, up to this point. So one of my bigger accomplishments, I'd say numbers wise, and, you know, hopefully just one of, I guess, many more that can get a little bit more, get better numbers. Hey, that's, that's the trajectory we're trying to take here of the Court Sounds podcast. Yeah. You know, get up in those uh, four to five digit numbers. That's uh, not quite where we're at yet. <laughs> but uh, got to uh, start yet. Yeah, early yeah. phases. That's all it is. Yep. Yep. Um, so what what does it take to um, you know, is it a certain threshold, a certain benchmark in numbers, to say get noticed, if you will, or what what's kind of the next step or the next phase to attain? You think? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing in with music, um, and I've recently gotten um, you know, management as far as um, you know, someone who um is kind of managing, I guess, my process as an artist. Um, and so it's really just a matter of first getting like your social media following up. So, um, you know, on Instagram, obviously you want to have, you know, tens of thousands of followers for people to, to take you seriously. And then um, with that, just the numbers will go up. It's, it's a lot of different things. So social media, it's also having like music videos and, and, and just having a lot of content that, um, you know, people kind of want to invest in your life, basically. People are only going to listen to you if they um, you know, care about, you know, who you are, or what you're doing. So just kind of getting a bigger following. And then I think um, with that, you know, like record labels and stuff like that um, and the numbers themselves streaming wise will, will go up with that. So that's kind of the process I'm at right now. And like I said, I'm getting people who are kind of helping me um, get the groundwork laid for, for that. Gotcha. Uh, you know, you, you recounted how Mike Thomas actually helped you get started. He encouraged you to go to that studio initially what yeah. i guess um since that time or even before that time um, as far as musical inspirations go like who inspired you or who do you would you say do you pattern yourself after anybody or did you when you first started and uh how has that come along yeah i mean so i was always into a lot of lyrical rap um so i mean i grew up listening to I guess at the time Kanye West when he was really big that was like in my younger like middle school days I say but um, my favorite artist and like my biggest inspiration is Drake I mean obviously I mean he's probably the biggest artist in the world so um, it's not much of a surprise but uh, I've always like connected with his music because he's not from um, he's not you know from inner city area he's not a really a street rapper it's Canadian um, right conscious and yeah talking about like a lot of different things um, that are more relatable to the life I live. And so I've always just kind of gravitated to that um, and try to incorporate that type of, I guess, energy into the music I make too. Okay. Well, it sounds like you actually have invested more, like you're in the process of bringing the studio to you, so to speak, right now. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. So I just um, invested in an in-home studio. Um, me and my cousin live together in our apartment. Um, he's, he's, he makes music also. So um, it's good to have, obviously, if my roommate didn't like all the noise and stuff, that might be an issue. But um, since we have the same passion, it's, it's pretty easy. But yeah, I just 
invested in in-home studio, you know, a mic, um, monitor, speakers, laptop, um, you know, soundproof for the walls. Um, so it was a pretty expensive purchase, but I'm hoping that in the long run, I'll see some return on investment and um, I'll, be make, I'll be saving more money by not going to the studio than, than, than I was, you know, going to the studio every week. So um, it's been a good investment. It's, it's just taking some time to get everything set up and it's a lot that goes into that, but um, excited about that and excited to be able to just record from home and whenever I want to make music, I can just go into, you know, the room where the studio is and, and start recording. You mentioned the Kalihi studio was $50 an hour to, to record. Yeah. yeah. How, how much are, is a quality New York studio compared to the Kalihi studio? So it's about double that. You pay like 100 to 120 an hour for like a good studio. Um, it's worth it sound quality wise. Like it's night and day. Like when I'm hearing something I made in the studio in New York versus what it would sound like in Hawaii, um, it's just night and day. But, um, you know, it's just living, you know, paying rent every month and spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in the studio. It's just not what I wanted to be doing. So um, I feel like, you know, in-home studio was the, the way to go. You know, looking looking at a guy like Drake and really emulating him, right? And you mentioned, I think he comes from kind of a, a non-traditional background, right? Compared to a lot of people in the music industry. Right. Do, do you see yourself in that vein as well? I mean, uh, I know you, you came from a pretty good family. like, And that's in contrast to, I think, a lot of, what a lot of music guys talk about in their in their yeah art. I mean definitely I mean that's why you know Drake's such an influence for me um he kind of opened the door for it to be acceptable for people who didn't grow up in a certain environment like that to still have value in music so um I was always taught to just never try to be somebody I'm not so I'm not gonna pretend that I'm from a certain area or have gone through certain experiences when that's not the case um and I try to just make them I mean, everyone's got a situation, everyone's got a story to tell. Um, and um, I kind of used the way, the formula that he created and a lot of people have followed since then um, and try to use that in my own music and um, just be myself and just be creative um, with things that are going on in, in my real life. When you were a basketball player, I think the thing that people, when they looked at you were like, can this guy play a division one based on your size? And I think yeah. that's what prevented you from getting a lot of offers coming out of high school, right? even yeah. though, you know, you had some team success, you had some numbers coming out of Dallas Jesuit High School. Was that something that you ever mentally, or I guess when would, would have been the time you mentally just got past the fact that that was going to be an obstacle or how did you get around that obstacle and, and what did you do to surmount it? Yes, I mean, I think the good thing about that is that, um, I think I even said this when uh, I was in Hawaii, I think you might have asked a similar question, but um, I was small, you know, my whole life. So it's it's not like I just stopped growing. Um, so, you know, even when I was in fifth grade, I was the smallest dude on the court. So um, it was pretty foreshadowing that, you know, I was going to be small. And at every every year, it's like, oh, he's too small to be playing. And then I start continue to hold my own. And then it's like, oh, I don't know if he'll, he might not be able to play, you know, in high school. I, it might be too big and strong at that point. And then I get to high school and, you know, um, I'm, producing at that level and it's like oh he can't play division one he'll have to go you know division two or, or go to prep school or juco um and you know I got to my senior year of high school and um like you said I was putting up good numbers um you know I was playing on an AAU team with Miles Turner and 
Emmanuel Moutier and, and people, um, you know, so I was playing with those people and I felt like I was at that same level as far as, um, you know, being able to compete. So um, when I got to my senior year and I wasn't getting any offers, um, Division One, I, I had, you know, Division Two offers from pretty much every school um, imaginable, but I just believed in myself. Um, luckily, my family believed in me as well. Um, and I decided that, you know, I, I was going to play, it was Division One or bust for me. So um, it was late in my senior year and um, I got a call from like the trainer that used to work me out. He's like, come up to your high school for a workout. And I'm like, at first I was like, I don't know, like, I didn't really feel like doing that at the time because I was pretty low about not having offers. Um, and then I get there and it's a guy in a polo shirt, like a Aloha shirt, you know, in the front <laughs> row. And it's, uh, it's Gib Arnold. I didn't know who it was at the time, but I'm just, you know, working out. It's a few other guys and we start playing two on two, three on three. And, um, you know, after it was at a time where I don't think he could like contact me for like, you know, NCAA rules or whatever. So he just relayed the message to my coach that he'd reach out to me, you know, on, on phone. And I was excited thinking, you know, I was about to get a scholarship offer to Hawaii. I was like, excited and then got on the phone and it was you know just an opportunity to come as a preferred walk-on and um at that point I had to obviously think about it but it at the end of the day it was like division one or bust for me so that was my foot in the door I needed and after I convinced my my mom to let me go that far for college uh that's just how I got there and it should be worth noting I'm going to point out something you said in at least this instance Gib Arnold followed the rules it's yeah he did. He did. He did. Let's, he did. let's underscore that for a second. He walked out of the gym. He followed all rules um, and got my number through my trainer and I uh, had a conversation over the phone. Um, so, yeah, that was my first encounter with Coach Gibb, who obviously I didn't get to, to play for much. I was there for like a couple months while he was. Um, but I give a lot of credit to him because I don't obviously I wouldn't have been at Hawaii if he didn't you know come to that gym that day. So um, in the grand scheme of things, I'm very appreciative for everything um, you know he did for me as well. Well, I mean, this was asked of you and your teammates a number of times, the, the guys who were in that, you know, same time frame that you were guys like, you know, Mike Thomas and Aaron Valdez and, and go down the list, like playing for the three coaches in a three-year span. And then in the end for you, it ended up being three coaches in five years because you played your last few years under Coach Gannat, right? So right. Um, how do you look back at that time now, Brock? I mean, it, it seems like, like it's been a little far removed at this point, even though it's only been a handful of years since yeah. that period of turmoil. I mean, that was crazy for me. That first year was just like, I didn't know what was going on. Like I got there, I started doing, you know, the summer workouts um, in the old gym too, that was hot. And at first it was like my first introduction to, to basketball. I was, um, I think probably about an inch shorter than I ended up being at the time. Cause I was 17 at the time. Um, I was about 150 pounds versus, you know, being 170 um, towards like the end of my career. So uh, it was just a learning experience at first. Like I'm playing against Quincy Smith and, and, and Rod Bobbitt and, you know, they're just killing me on the court. Um, and then, you know, Coach Gibb is a, you know, very um, verbal, aggressive coach. And um, those first few months were hard um, as far as just like getting adjusted to what it was like at the division one level. Um, and then, you know, as I felt like I was getting adjusted at that point, then um, out of nowhere, you know, he got let go. And so that was pretty chaotic. And then, um, you know, obviously Coach Benji picked up from there um, the rest of the season. And um, around that time, I decided to redshirt along with uh, Zach Busher. So at that point, um, it got a little bit easier because I knew that 
at that point, I could just focus on myself, um, you know, trying to get stronger and up to speed while not even thinking about, you know, traveling or, or playing or anything like that. So um, I felt like at that point, that year got good, um, just kind of getting, tr- trying to get adjusted to the speed of the game and, um, you know, learning from guys like Rod and Quincy and stuff like that. Um, and then right after the season, obviously, Benji got let go and um, Coach Gannat ended up taking the position, which obviously I had no relationship with Coach Gannat. And, um, you know, when new coaches come in, they can kind of just get rid of the old walk-ons and, and bring in their own set of walk-ons. So um, after that season, I didn't know what my future was like. I didn't know, you know, if he was going to, um, you know, ask me to kind of leave the team or what the case was. But um, he met with me and um, kind of instilled what he expected from his walk-ons and thought that if I can, you know, bring that to the table, um, then he'd be willing to keep me on. And so I was obviously graceful for that because at that point I hadn't proven myself on the court. Um, and so, yeah, that whole year to answer your question was just super chaotic. Um, on top of that, you know, it was my first time being away from home and, um, you know, in college. So it was a lot going on. I didn't – couldn't imagine it. I don't think anybody else probably has gone through experience like what the people on that team went through um, that year. Um, but, I mean – I think it built character for myself and a lot of the guys who ended up staying through that process, like Mike and um, some other people as well. Brock, was there any singular moment that stands out in your mind now as like the craziest moment or, or time during that whole period? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of them. I think the initial one is just like, I remember we got, we found out on Twitter that coach Gibb got fired. Um, Cause obviously he didn't, and then he addressed the team that same day afterwards, but, we were just in the – we all went to – I forget whose room on, on campus it was, but we all just went there and we're like, like, what's going on? Like, you know, what's going to happen next? And, um, you know, at that time we didn't know if they were – if you know, we were going to be banned from postseason play that year, that current year. And it's like, well, what are, what are we really playing for then and stuff like that. So I think that first just initial day, and then we get to the – you know, to – the gym and um, have that first practice afterwards and it's just cameras all over the place. Um, I think those first initial couple of days were like, you know, this is, this seems like something out of a movie or something, um, especially because it just wasn't something that was like expected. So I think that was probably the biggest experience. And then um, from there, I think the most rewarding experience obviously was that following year, a lot of those same guys who were part of that team, um, you know, becoming arguably probably the best team in Hawaii history. So um, I think that was kind of like a storybook ending to what the previous year, um, you know, was for everybody. Well, as you said, you kind of apprenticed under guys like Roderick Bobbitt and, and Quincy Smith in that that first year. Uh, well, first two years, I guess, right? Uh, yeah, first two years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What <laughs> I mean, Roderick would go on to set all the steals records at the University of Hawaii for a game, for a season, for a career him specifically you know he he wasn't the most vocal verbal guy under like just regular kinds of situations but he he would be like a bulldog on the court and I'm just wondering like what was it like to kind of be an understudy to to a player like that yeah I mean I tell people all the time um just like friends I don't think I ever learned as much from another player I play with than from with Rod um just because um he just the way he approached the game which is different than what I was accustomed to like like you said, off the court, um, you know, around people he trusts and, and likes, um, you know, he's very much expressive and, um, you know, personable. But I guess in the grand scheme of things, he's somewhat quiet um, in, in most cases. 
Um, but on the court, like, he doesn't say much, that much either, but he just commands a certain presence um, about him, um, the way he plays and the energy he brings. And he has just that bulldog toughness mentality. Um, and so, I mean, just watching him, going up against him, seeing how he approached everything every day. Um, you know, I like, I used to never get the ball stolen from me by anybody growing up. And then next thing you know, I'm in practice every day, and he just steals the ball whenever he feels like it from me. So, uh it was a lot of growing pains for me, but just seeing – I picked up a lot just on how to approach the game and how to run the offense and, um, you know, how to have that that kind of quiet toughness and confidence that he had. Um, and I eventually would try to bring that to my game in, in the following years when I, when I got my chance. Yeah, I mean, how, how much do you think that helped, like, inform how you played by the time you had the ball in your hands at the end of those games a number of times when you got that moniker, the, the late clock moniker, because you were able to hit a clutch shot or make the right pass. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think when I finally got to start playing, um, you know, the years after like Rod and Quincy left, um, I think a part of the reason it was a, a somewhat of a smooth transition for me was just because the people I was playing against at that time weren't better than the people that I had been going up at practice against every day. So um, I felt like at that point I was battle tested and um, those experiences that I had over my first two years, uh, prepared me to succeed in those type of moments and then obviously just putting the work in on top of that but I think um, just you know those guys uh, that I played with during those teams even Isaac Fleming and people like that um, that high level competition and energy that those that team had um, that kind of molded me into the player I was and um, being able to handle those late clock situations and um, you know I guess my just my situation in general um, on the court. Brock I I'm going to ask you if there's a moment you wish you could have back from, you know, your, your playing days, if there's any one that comes to mind, like one game, one tough moment, I have one in mind that I think you might say, but I'm just curious. I'm not going to say it until you go. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple, I think, um, game I think back all the time is like the, my senior year, um, against Irvine at home. Um, when we were the top of the conference at that point, I think we were undefeated or, may have we either were undefeated or had lost one but um we knew if we beat Irvine at home like that was going to put us in a position to like really be in control of the conference and we were up like the whole game and then we ended up blowing like a double digit lead and then on top of that for me um Max Hazard hit the game winning shot right above me um you know in my own gym which was which was tough and the year before that he hit the game winning shot against me in the Big West tournament so it was like no way that happens again and ends up happening again. So that was tough. But the game I wish I could have back the most is that same year, just the Long Beach um, conference tournament game, um, kind of in the same fashion as the year before. Like we were up the whole game and then um, it just seemed like everything that could have gone wrong for us went wrong and everything that could have gone right for them went right. Like they had um, guys like Drew Cobb who hadn't hit like three like all season, hit like right, two right. threes and stuff like that that just – didn't seem like it was possible. So that's the game I want back the most um, because I feel like really that year, um, my last year, I feel like we had a team that could have won that tournament and uh, it was just unfortunate the way it ended. All right. Well, you, you mentioned it. The one that came to mind for me was the previous year in the tournament against Irvine. Cause I know Irvine had been, has, has been that team that's kind of stuck in the craw, you know, they, they just seem to, I guess have lately at least pulled out the right, plays at the right moments and that yeah that max hazard sequence was tough and i correct me if i'm wrong brog you 
you guys got one last look, right? Coming out of a timeout, yeah, maybe. Year, yeah, I, yeah, my the year we lost the Irvine tournament, um, we got a last look. It was like four seconds on the clock, and um, you know they just drew up a play for me to just get the ball and run as fast as I can and hopefully get a good shot. And I actually got a pretty good look up. Um, just didn't really come off my hands the right way, and that was a tough way to end the season um, for sure. Um, but I kind of use that as motivation for the next year. Like, okay, when we get back to the tournament, like there's no way I, I refuse to lose in the first round again. And mm. Unfortunately, like that's just the way life is. Uh, <laughs> I found that out the hard way, but um, you know, no matter how much you want things to happen, sometimes it doesn't go your way. But uh, that, that those three games that you mentioned, the, the, the two conference tournament games and the Irvine home game my senior year, those are the ones I, I wish I could get back. Well, I, I remember that actual final shot that you got off. It was like a floater coming straight down the lane, right, or something yeah. something along those lines. And I, I thought it might go. Like, I was sitting there. Yeah, I mean, it's one on of my press favorite press, shots. Press, yeah. um, that was your shot. That was pretty much my favorite shot. Uh, I just – I don't know what it was. It didn't come off my hands right that time, and it was tough. But, um, yeah. They might have they got a contest on it. I, you know, it might not yeah, have been a total clean Yeah, it was a pretty good look. contest um, for sure. But I just – the adrenaline was rushing at that point. And I, I always dreamed of like hitting a game winner in, in a conference tournament type setting. And I thought that was going to be the, that was going to be it. And it just didn't happen. But uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, as you said, that's life. Uh, yeah. Maybe it makes them fodder for a track somewhere down the line. Definitely. I'm hoping <laughs> so. <laughs> well, Brock, this was your first season or year post basketball, you know, being a, a active regular player. I mean, how did that feel? How does that feel? And do you still entertain hopes of playing somewhere overseas or, or whatnot? Because I know you at least mentioned that as a possibility previously. Yeah, um, I definitely miss the game of basketball playing. Um, I'll say I don't miss it as – I don't think I miss it as much as I think I would have. I mean, to be honest, like, my whole dream growing up was playing Division One college basketball. Like, I didn't really have expectations of – playing professionally or in the NBA or whatever the case was. So I felt like I got to the pinnacle of where I wanted to be um, those last few years in Hawaii. Like I felt like I was living a, a movie that or a dream that I had been dreaming my whole life. Um, and it would have been nice to play professionally. Um, you know, I had a few opportunities too, but I didn't um, just didn't see that it was going to be the best fit for me at the time. Um, but I still, I missed the game. Obviously I watch it as much as I can. Um, still work out every day to stay in shape, but I, I don't really have any plans of, um, you know, playing basketball um, professionally or anything like that anytime soon. Gotcha. Or really ever, to be honest. <laughs> okay. So I see you're, yeah. I see you're totally in, in music mode going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Music and just, and just real, I mean, just, just life in general. Um, I mean, the ball stops bounce for everybody at some point, And I think I just decided that, um, you know, for me, it was just going to be right after college and, um, haven't really regretted that decision as much as I thought I would have. I was second guessing it at first, but um, now I've been loving just life and just learning and feeling like, you know, I'm doing things that, you know, when you're in college basketball mode, you, you're really just an athlete and everything else is on the side. So it's been good to kind of have a, a different perspective on things. Brock, uh, the floor is yours for any final thing you want to say about, you know, what's next for you kind of in your immediate future and things that people can look out for. Yeah, I mean, again, I appreciate you having me on, Brian. Um, it's been a pleasure, like, always talking with you. Um, I'd say for me, just um, now, you know, as things are hopefully getting back to normal um, in, in life in general, I'm going to be working on music, 
hopefully get another project out soon. Um, you know, now that I have management kind of overseeing me also, um, hopefully a lot of different like music videos and, and content and stuff um, that can get put out, you know, towards the end of 2020 and early 2021 as well. Um, and just going to do a better job on my part of just getting out content and, and for people to listen to and um, continue to kind of build up, you know, things that I've been working on. So um, I'll be putting that on my Instagram page. Um, and, you know, obviously on top of that, just want to just shout out to the island itself. Um, it's always like, I feel like my second home and, um, you know, hope everyone there is doing well and Hawaii basketball, I'm going to be keeping up as much as I can. I, I didn't do a great job of it this year just because of the time difference. Um, it's like six hours at times different. So I missed a lot of games, but um, hopefully when the season kicks off this year, I'll be more um, tuned into everything. Well, you did actually make it out here for honorary game captaincy for one of the early season games, right? And Yeah. yeah um, the first game, yeah, in the outrigger. Yep, so. Yeah, the very first. And, uh, well, as you were saying, you'll put out your stuff uh, on Instagram as you go, as well as, I'm sorry, Apple yeah. and Spotify are the, the primary ways for people to access your, your music right now. Right. And your Instagram handle is at flames harden with a Z on flames. Yeah. That's, that's a new change. Um, just trying to be a little creative with the, with the branding and stuff. Uh, yeah. It's, it's flames harden with a Z instead of an S. All right. Well, Brock Stepto, it was an honor to have you on. It was great to hear from you. Best of luck with your future endeavors over there. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me.